Good morning. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Joe Cassiope, and along with my colleague Brian McCool from Fredrickson and Byron, we represent the petitioner AIM Development USA LLC. Both parties and the amicus in this matter agree that the Court of Appeals erred both in how it defined the relevant issue in this case and then the holding it reached on that issue. Specifically, the Court of Appeals erred by focusing on the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency permit that was in effect in 2012 when AIM purchased the Landville property, rather than the permit, city ordinance, and other relevant circumstances in existence at the time that the use became a legal nonconformity. And that was back in 1989. That fundamental error led the Court of Appeals. Council, does it matter what the permit was or the ordinance was prior to 1989? I, I, I believe it does, Your Honor. And the reason for that is the court in the first question that the court needs to answer here, there's two questions the court needs to answer. The first is, what was the use back prior to or at the time that the, that the use became nonconforming? And in order to determine what that use was, some of the factors that the court can look at are what was the ordinance in effect at the time, what was the permit in effect at the time, and the other relevant circumstances. And is there enough in the record to answer that specific question if we agree that the Court of Appeals analyzed that issue incorrectly? We believe there is, Your Honor. Uh, the two items, both of which are in our addendum, are the ordinance itself and the, uh, and the original permit. The only thing that is missing from the record that the parties were unable to locate was Appendix L to the permit. And that Appendix L had the specific types of waste that were allowed to be deposited at the time. But we believe that based upon the undisputed record of what Isn't that a significant um, piece that would be missing? Uh, we would like to have it if we could. Uh, we do not. Um, I don't think it is, and, and uh, here's why. The original permit, which again is in our addendum, uh, specifically provides that types of specified non-hazardous industrial waste that can be deposited in the landfill. Uh, we don't know what those are, but, and here's the key factor, the permit itself specifically provides that upon written approval, the director of the MPCA is entitled to um, approve additional types of non-hazardous industrial waste. And so just comparing the ordinance itself and the permit as a matter of Minnesota land use law, the, the Ames predecessor was permitted to um, deposit additional types of non-hazardous industrial waste um, without the city's input solely at the discretion of the director of the MPCA. Uh, so that's the first question the court needs to analyze. What was the use back in 1989? And then the second question is whether Ames' proposal to accept uh, waste from other sources than the now closed Versal paper mill is a substantial change from that legal nonconforming use. So let's start with the first question, what was the use? And the reason why we need to start uh, by defining that issue is Ultimately, what this court is doing is determining what Ames property rights are under Minnesota Statute Section 
subdivision 1E. Um, and then uh, based on that, whether the landfill activities proposed by AIM in its 2014 permit are a continuation of that non-conforming use or an expansion under the statute. Council, uh, the thing that uh, I find most interesting about this case has to do with the change in um, use of the land from the um, now exploded, burned, destroyed, gone mill um, to a commercial landfill operation. Uh, I'm not as troubled by the concerns of the neighbors. I'm not as troubled by the, the greater usage in terms of fill, but that does seem to be a change in character. And I'm just wondering if you look at our precedent, what would you, what, what precedent would you find that best supports your argument that it's permitted here? I think if we're uh, solely limiting ourselves to Minnesota cases, the, the cases that I would um, focus on are the Hawkins v. Talbot decision, which involved a change in use that was a gravel pit case um, where the municipality argued that um, bringing in a new piece of equipment, a new modern piece of equipment from another site changed the use and this court rejected it. And also the, um, Northwest Residents v. City of Broken Park decision, um, which is a Minnesota Court of Appeals decision, um, which decided that changing a fourplex to a group home was not a change in use. So those are, I think those are the two closest decisions that talk about kind of fundamentally changing what comes onto the property or the use of the property that the court can use for purposes of its guidance. But your question really gets to the heart of why it's so important that we start by defining what the use is. Because if we start by defining the use as this is a non-hazardous waste industrial landfill, um, which it is our contention that is how the court should define that use, then who uses it and what types of non-hazardous waste are brought onto the property really don't matter. Council, is it your position then if Verso Paper hadn't sold the property to you that it would have been allowed to change its, its method of operation to uh, operate a non-hazardous landfill that people could send waste to from all over? Yes, it is our position and for two reasons. First is the use is broad enough. The original use back in 1989 was broad enough. Um, it was a non-hazardous industrial waste landfill. And second, even if the court decides to define the use in a more granular matter, manner than that, uh, in the way that the city is advocating as a captive, non-hazardous use industrial waste landfill, that it may only be used by a um, common owner on, uh, on nearby property, this still is not a substantial change under precedent from this court, from the Court of Appeals, and if we look nationwide, this use is not a substantial change from the use as it existed back in 1989. Council, in that regard, I mean, I heard you use the term here again, granular, and you you kind of hone in on that term in your, particularly in your reply brief, suggesting that the city's look is a granular look, whereas what you want us to look at, I, I gather, um, is this sort of broader um, non-hazardous waste facility. But I'm wondering, though, which one of those views 
most closely adheres to the law because it seems to me there's a good argument that, that we should be taking the granular look, that it's about the actual use uh, that the, the site was put to and not what you could have done. Um, and I think respondents make that point in their brief. It's not what you, what you were allowed to do under either the permit or as a non-hazardous waste facility, but what you did do, what your client did do. And that seems to be more in line with Hawkinson and some of our other precedent. So help me, that's how I see it now. Why is that wrong? Um, I agree 100%, Your Honor, that the touchstone is what was the actual use. And we're talking about, you know, we've analogized to a zoom lens on an older camera, right? Are we zooming all the way in at the granular level or are we zooming all the way out? Certainly here, you could zoom out too far. And what I mean by that is, um, I think we'd have a hard time coming into this court and saying, well, this was a landfill. And so therefore, it can only be used, it can be used as any type of landfill. Isn't that what you are saying? I guess no. that's what I thought you were saying. Because no. to me, that's like the stratosphere. And that's no, why that, I thought that's too broad. I agree, that is too broad. Um, Non-hazardous industrial waste landfills are a specific type of landfill. And they are a, um, a specific type of landfill as defined by the um, ordinance that was in effect in 1989, and they're a specific type of landfill as defined by the permit that was in effect in 1989. One case that I direct the court to, it's out of state, but I think it's very helpful, is that the North American building case from New Jersey, where the municipality made a very similar argument to the city. There, the, uh, there was a, a property owner that owned a warehouse and used it to store his own uh, sand, gravel, and contracting equipment. Another, uh, and then it became a non-conforming use as a warehouse. Another property owner came in, um, uh, acquired the, the building, and leased it to Kraft Cheese, for Kraft to store its cheese. And the municipality said, no, that was a warehouse that was only used by the owner for a specific purpose, um, and you shouldn't be able to lease it to a separate user for a separate purpose. And the Supreme Court of New Jersey, I think quite practically said, no, a warehouse is, is a warehouse. We would be zooming out too far, I agree, to say this was a landfill. And what helps us set the zoom level here are the permit and are the ordinance. We have an ordinance here that specifically was created for this specific use. Um, and so we, this isn't a situation where you have an ordinance that would have permitted five, six, seven types of use and we were only using one of them and now we should say we should be able to use one of the other six. This ordinance allowed us to... So, so under this ordinance, I, I saw somewhere in the record and I don't remember what document it was, but it was a list of the various types of things that AIM was proposing to, to now um, uh, store. I mean, and it was as broad as I thought I saw, you know, glass from cars, windshields, and I mean, it was a, an exhaustive list. Are you telling me that everything that I saw in that list would be, is permissible under the permit? Is that where you're going? Uh, if we look at the ordinance, it's the last page of our addendum. It defines the facility as a facility permitted by the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency or its regulatory successor for the disposal of non-hazardous and non-toxic industrial solid waste. And then industrial solid waste is defined, again, right in the ordinance, as non-hazardous, non-toxic waste material resulting from an industrial operation. So, um, windshields from cars, presumably. It, it, it certainly could, Your Honor. Um, and uh, we uh, aim in preparing 
that list of materials was simply checking the box. So the MPCA has a form that it um, has um, parties applying for landfill permits um, check off what type of landfill it is, and for non-hazardous industrial waste landfills, these all fit within what the MPC allows. Ask another question with respect to that. Should we, what's the relationship, if any, between what the ordinance allows and what the, the PCA, MP, those folks allow, versus the city's zoning authority. I mean, how do those fit together? Because the whole point of non-conforming uses is to eventually have them go away. Um, and th these seem to be in tension to me here. Potentially, Your Honor. I, I would say that based on this specific type of use, it will go away. At a certain point, and it was estimated at 10 years, frankly, if this permit had been approved, the landfill would be almost full at this point um, rather than litigating. So this is a use that will go away. Um, it is our position that this court should look at both the permit that was in effect as of 1989 and the ordinance that was in effect, which was part of the city's overall zoning scheme at the time for purposes of determining what... So is there any... Is there a, is there a conflict in your position um, when you talk about... I mean, one of the first things you said uh, when you um, got up to visit with us about this is that the parties agree that the reliance on the MPCA um, in the Court of Appeals opinion it was incorrect. But it seems to me um, you have the MPCA regulations here doing a lot of work to have you prevail. Um, is, is there a conflict in your position or am I overthinking this? Uh, I won't comment on whether you're overthinking it. Um, Why should you be unique? And then, never mind. Go. <laughs> uh, there's not a conflict. We're, the point that the parties and the amicus all agree on is that the Court of Appeals erred by looking at what the MPCA permit was in 2012. Um, what there are certain circumstances for purposes of non-conforming uh, non use law where items that happen after the date of an adverse zoning change matter for abandonment purposes, for example, but. Based upon the facts and issues before this court, that's not a that's not a relevant inquiry. It's the permit as of 1989. Council, you mentioned the facts that are before the court. In uh, respondents' brief, they did something quite interesting. They said there are five dispositive facts, and I want to ask you about a couple of them. Uh, fact three: They say AIM bought the Sartell properties without reviewing the landfill site status under the city zoning ordinance and did not study the city zoning zoning laws. Is that a relevant fact? It is not because. AIM's knowledge or intent or purpose for the inquiry in, in front of the court right now uh, may be uh, relevant uh, for if this court uh, uh, sends this back to the district court for an intent or an abandonment inquiry. But what AIM had in its head is irrelevant to what the nonconforming use was back in 1989. All right, and then fact number four is AIM never intended to use the former paper mills landfill solely for waste generated on property in Sartell that AIM acquired from Verso. Is that relevant? It is not. It would only be relevant if this court adopted their, uh, the city's argument that this is a captive landfill that can only accept very specified types of industrial waste from a single source. If the court makes that legal determination, um, as the district court did here, uh, then that fact would be relevant uh, under our theory of the case and under what we believe is the law of the state of Minnesota and the approach taken across the country that is not a relevant factor on it. And then you talked about the level of generality at which we decide um, what was in use 
at the uh, time of the it became non-conforming. Is the level of generality a question of fact, a question of law, or a mixed question of law or fact? Um, uh, great question. Um, started thinking about that myself just yesterday. Um, and so did I. <laughs> where I've come out on that is, um, believe it is a mixed question of law and fact. There is a circumstance under which, depending on how the court defines what the use was, um, that it would need to send this back for trial on that question and also the question of whether what AIM is seeking to do now should be deemed a substantial change to that use. So if it's a mixed question of law and fact, then is it appropriate to be decided on summary judgment? It can be. I mean, it, you're advocating for one level of generality. Sartell's advocating for another level. Is that amenable to essentially cross motions for summary judgment, or is there enough fact tint in there that we need to send it back? It, it can be, depending on whether, as to the legal issues as this court defines it, um, whether there are any genuine issues of material fact. And so for purposes of what the district court decided and the rule of law that the district court applied, um, it, it would have been amenable to summary judgment. We obviously believe that that is incorrect, and depending on the test or rule that this court applies, um, it may need to go back for trial, again, depending on those circumstances. Uh, I want to focus on uh, the second question in the time that I have left, subject to any more questions the court has, which is, um, what should this court look to, the, the, uh, regardless of what this court decides the use was, what level of Zoom to apply? What should the court do for purposes of analyzing what is a, where the line is really between what is a continuation and what is an expansion? Uh, Minnesota, we have some guidance on, on this point, but uh, what the court, I'm sure, has noticed or will notice reading the cases is that it's very facts and circumstances dependent. If we go outside of Minnesota, courts tend to apply a rule or a test, and the rule or test that um, that both we have cited, the Court of Appeals cited, and the city has cited is whether the, um, the use, the proposed use, is a substantial change from uh, the use in existence at the time of the adverse zoning case. And if the, but if the court wants to look specifically at where this court has drawn lines in the past, I refer the court to the Hawkins v. Talbot case, which is the gravel pit case, um, and uh, as kind of drawing the line on, on one spot, and then the County of Freeborn case, where this court held that it was an expansion to construct a building where there was previously only outdoor storage of equipment. Um, the two cases I think that are most helpful, if this court does decide to look outside of Minnesota, the two cases that I think are most helpful um, that can best guide the court's inquiry would be the City of Jewel Junction case from the Supreme Court of Iowa, and then the Triangle Fraternity case from Oklahoma. The City of Jewel Junction case was a, um, another group home case like the Brooklyn Park decision we cited. And in that decision, the city was asserting that it was a change in use or an impermissible expansion of use to go for, from a group home for retired adults uh, with mental illness to a group home for younger adults with mental illness. Supreme Court of Iowa rejected that position and I think made two important points. First, quote, an increase in business alone does not constitute an illegal extension of a nonconforming use. 
Second, quote, the key is that the present use must not be substantially or entirely different from the original use. In that respect, not every change in particulars or details in the methods of a non-conforming use or in equipment, object, or processes in connection therewith constitutes an unauthorized change in the use. Uh, and the Triangle Fraternities, similar, another uh, retirement home to fraternity house case, similar facts, similar ruling. Council, though, if the policy, the sort of the 50,000-foot policy on nonconforming uses is that we want them to go away, why does it make sense that we would adopt a rule of law that says if you're going to continue the use but it's just more business? I mean, why, would, why should we incent more business if, if the idea here is we want to get rid of these nonconforming uses? There are two very important policy ramifications based upon how the court decides this. The, the one of them is what the court just mentioned. We, we absolutely agree that this court, um, the courts across the country routinely state that um, eventually we want nonconforming uses to go away. And of course this will because it has limited capacity. But the also the other extremely important um, policy ramification here is that this court has recognized that there is a constitutional right for parties to continue to use their property regardless of an adverse zoning change. And so the court in deciding how to address this issue needs to weigh those competing policy ramifications. Our position, we believe, particularly based upon the facts and circumstances of this particular use, um, honors that constitutional vested property right while at the same time um, uh, providing for a means where this use will ultimately go out of effect. So just to be clear on the property right, it's the right that the paper company, I think Regis at the time, had in, just right before the 1989 change based on the language of the zoning ordinance. Yep. It is, 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 that, is that the simplest way to kind of put it, that they have the rights that they had under that zoning ordinance? I, I would um, define it a little bit more broadly than that. It's very close. Um, it, is, it is absolutely the right as it existed in 1989 um, based upon the facts and circumstances that existed at that point, which include the rights as defined by the zoning ordinance, the rights as defined by the MPCA permit. And, and the permit is relevant because the zoning ordinance requires that you get an MPCA permit. They can, the ordinance kind of defines it by permit. It, true, but I, I would also um, point the court to what the uh, Minnesota Legal Cities stated on this point, and I, because we agree with them on it. What they stated on page 13 of their brief is, quote, a state-issued license or permit may be relevant in the context of nonconforming use law if it is used for the limited purpose of determining the actual use existing at the time of a zoning change. And so uh, as we are looking back and trying to define, to set that zoom setting, the permit is one tool that this court can use. I'd refer the court to the uh, appeal of Schneider case from Pennsylvania that we've um, cited. But on that issue, counsel, is, yes. there, is there any contest that the actual use at that time was by the paper mill for ash? Uh, the, uh, it is undisputed, it was undisputed at the district court that the only waste that was going into the landfill as of 1989 was ash from the paper mill. And so based on that, the district court, in our view, defining the use too narrowly stated, well, that means that this was a captive ash industrial waste non-hazardous landfill, our position is that's far too narrow, that 
you will not be able to find, uh, save one unpublished Ohio Court of Appeals case that the uh, city relies on. This court won't be able to find a single decision from this court or any other court in the country that defines the use at that, that granular level. Council, it, it, it seems like here we, we have to decide where along this continuum what your client now is proposing to do, where it, where it lies along that, that continuum of, of uh, substantially different. And I wonder if a better comparison, I mean, I'm listening to you talk about the Jewel Junction case, but I thought that a better comparison is the case that respondents cite. Um, it's an unpublished case from the Court of Appeals, State versus Loomis. Um, where they're talking about a camp, a guy owned, a property owner owned a campground facility where basically you could put up tents and, you know, your basic sort of ground level RV camping kind of stuff. And he go, the property owner goes from that to wanting to put up, put in electrical, water, sewers, sun decks, gardens, that kind of thing, fundamentally changing the nature of, of the property. And this just strikes me as fundamentally changing the nature from a paper plant where you were taking in the ash products to a full-blown, um, you know, repository for windshields from cars and that whole range of things. Why am I wrong about why? Why is Loomis not the comparison? Not the not the lens. Why yeah, is that not the lens? lens. Um, Loomis fundamentally is a case about the failure to um, uh, comply with the 75-foot setback. And so there's a lot of additional discussion in Loomis about all of the buildings. Um, but, but I would say this. Um, if one point under Minnesota law is clear, it's this. If you didn't have a building there before, at the time a use becomes nonconforming, you can't build a building. Um, that's a rule that this court has set. Um, where the line is, um, is what, what this court is going to have to decide. Um, we believe that this should be defined as a non-hazardous industrial waste landfill, but that even if the court does define it on a more granular level, this merely changing who uses the landfill or what types of non-hazardous industrial waste gets deposited in the landfill is not a substantial change. Thank you, Council. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Baker. Good morning. May it please the court, Council. My name is John Baker of the Green Espel Firm, and along with my partner, Aaron Canole, we represent the city of Sartell. This case is about whether what Verso Paper did with its paper mill waste gives AIM a statutory right to start burying dozens of new kinds of waste generated by anyone without ever engaging with the city in the land use approval process. That would not be a continuation of Verso Paper's prior use, it would be the start well, of a new I'm use. not sure that that helps us much, Council, because based on what I know about, not necessarily the city of Sartell, but generally land use process, um, um, you'd have to work pretty hard to avoid it. I mean, in other words, uh, if that's the test, there'd be no continuation of a non-conforming use. What, 
what is the limit under your test? What, sure, what does it mean? Yes, um, there's, uh, we believe the test is substantial change in the nature of the use. And there's not a single measure uh, which best reflects the difference between a mere change in use and when it becomes a substantial change in the nature of the use. I agree with the statement I discovered over the weekend by the Rhode Island Supreme Court in a case called Santoro versus Board of Review 171, Atlantic 2nd, page 75, starting at, at 77, where they say it's impossible to formulate a hard and fast rule on this topic. Instead, case law suggests certain questions that courts should ask to get to the heart of the matter. One such question is whether the change would be the kind that would result in a different impact in the neighborhood. The record won't always reflect that, but in this case, the court has the benefit of the MPCA application, which sets out in great detail what they would propose to do and when. Other relevant considerations would in, here would include whether the use continues to just serve one of the property owner's needs or whether it would serve the different needs of different people. Counsel, you're suggesting this is kind of a totality of the circumstances test to determine what's a substantial change. Is that a question of fact? Is it a question of law? Or is it a question of mixed question of fact and law? What's our scope of review on this? We agree with the you, point. We because I, oddly, your brief didn't really say much, if anything, about scope of review. Um, we, I believe we've got a sentence somewhere in our brief that said that we believe this is a mixed question of law and fact. So I actually agree with what I heard from my friend on that particular point. But to one of the issues that you raised and the response of, of opposing counsel on that, um, this was appropriate to have been decided at the summary judgment stage in part because the party that is before you as the appellant never argued that there was a genuine issue of material fact that warranted a trial in response to our motion for summary judgment. So what we heard today about, well, you know, if you set the standard the same way that the district court did, summary judgment makes sense, but if you do it our way, we get to go to trial, they have waived that argument under these circumstances. I think your, um, your discussion of the scope of review is on page 36 and you're quoting a case from New Jersey. Um, well, in, but well, you, you yeah. agree it's a mixed question of law and fact. I agree it is. I mean, there are cases, and we've seen several of them, tried several of them, where the question comes down to whether or not the use was in fact there, even though it doesn't show up on aerial photos. That is a question of fact for trial. This isn't one of those cases. This is, however, part of the case-by-case -case adjudication that this court has always done and that other courts have done on the question of at what point does the change constitute a substantial one, and at what some point it, does it affect the nature of it? It is laden so, so and sufficient. I'm, I'm still confused as to what our scope of review is. Uh, of, of the district court's conclusion, this was a substantial departure. Well, um, are we supposed to give that deference? If so, how much? No, because all of this is before the court on cross motions for summary judgment, and the only argument made about a genuine issue of material fact was ours on a different issue that's not in front of the court, it was de novo review in the Court of Appeals, and it's de novo review in front of this court. So um, is, should it be up to the fact finder to decide whether having auto glass as part of the uh, waste is, is or is not substantially similar to what was deposited before? I mean, 
No. Do we need a trial on it? No, a trial isn't necessary, nor did the plaintiff argue below when the occasion occurred that a trial was necessary for that on that particular issue. Well, in it cross is, motions, everybody says, I, I win, I win. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we decide you're both wrong, and, and yeah. a trial is necessary. As I think the arguments of the parties and of the cases that are being cited reflect, it's a very policy-laden uh, distinction. It's not a question of who you believe. And so it's not the kind of a question for which the, um, the, the trier of fact, the person before whom the testimony is there. It's also important, um, you know, focusing on the uh, f four or five facts we've got. Um, a record was made in discovery on this case with admissions by AIM under the circumstances that they are left with here. And so that's another reason why in this particular case this is needed. Um, so in, in 1988, if another local manufacturer and industrial use had come to Regis at the time and said, we have this waste, we'd like to deposit this waste in your landfill and we'll pay you a little bit of money to do that, could, under the 1988 version of the ordinance, could the paper company have allowed, was that allowed? There was no prohibition in the 1988 pre-amendment version so they the could have done that. On that, that could have happened. But so say that would have happened. Yeah. So there's one, just one company, in addition to the paper company that's putting waste into the landfill for a small fee. Mm -hmm. Under your rule of law, then would that allow? It, would your position on what would your position be? Would it be that they're limited to their own waste and that one other person, or is it now this is a, an industrial landfill that can accept? Uh, waste for a fee? Our position is that the question of whether it's a continuation is a closer one than it is right now. They lose miserably on the discontinuance issue because of if, if it was well, just Well, discontinuance there, but, is going yeah, back anyway. Yeah, so, yeah. so but, but that would be, so well, what would the outcome if be? If it was a different prior lawful use, that would be the benchmark for what the actual use would be. So if there was one additional person paying a fee, then they could now accept from anybody? Well, uh, industrial waste. Non to, to be clear, I mean, there, there, are, there are, there's a statement by a Connecticut court that says in this context, you know, a, a shovel full of gravel dumped every year does not a gravel pit make. At some point, if it's just a token or a symbolic effort, that isn't sufficient. Assume well, it's counsel. not a token or symbolic effort. Mm -hmm. uh, in that scenario, not present here, um, the argument would be better that the scope of the prior use was broader. But here, to quote from what AIM said yes to... Council, before, before you go there, I, I'm having the same question and trouble that Justice Thiessen is. I'm wondering, under your rule, what could they have done? It almost sounds like the only thing that they could do at this point is reopen the old paper mill. Paper mill. Um, because just about anything else, so where on that, can, how far down that continuum could they have gone? Yeah. Because your view almost mm -hmm. seems like they're hemmed in to, since that was the actual use prior to 1989, that, well, where is the line? I'm glad you asked. The use could have continued as a captive landfill. By that we mean it could have continued as a landfill for waste generated on the property owned by the same person. So hypothetically, if AIM constructed a facility to generate widgets, it could dispose of its own widget waste 
on the property. But here, there was never any evidence that AIM intended to limit use to the landfill for waste generated on the property. That's in their 30.02F deposition. Sounds like you're almost advocating, and I think you cited in your brief, the um, aluminum case. I can't think of the... the aluminum one. smelting? Yeah. Yes. Where it goes from a captive landfill like we have here to a more general um, uh, landfill site. And the court there said, no, that's not a continuation. Is that your position, essentially? We believe the Ohio Court of Appeals got it exactly right in what is plainly the most factually similar circumstance that we have here. Um, I mean, Council, what if, though, what if, if, um, if the property owner decides to build a brand new paper mill and with the latest and greatest types of technology and a whole bunch of new kind of ha uh, non-hazardous industrial waste is generated. It used to just be ash, but now there's 50 different types and there's a whole bunch more landfill uh, uh, waste put in the landfill. And the neighbors are crabby because it smells terrible, and it, but it's all this paper mill. Is that uh, a permitted uh, expansion under your rule of law? Um, it's certainly a closer question than this one, and because impact on the neighborhood, which is one of the things you've mentioned, would be a consideration, um, it would be important to take a look at that. Where and does to, the to property see... owner's constitutional right come into the analysis? It Barely. It, it does not come in to the analysis at all when the question isn't termination of a non-conforming use right like White versus City of Elk River, but is instead someone asserting, I've got the right to change. And to go to Justice Lillehug's initial question that he asked my friend about whether or not their lack of due diligence when they were making the purchase was relevant in all, at all, we disagree with uh, AIM on this. They have made it relevant by trying to wrap themselves in the Constitution and trying to elevate their desire to make a change in the use to the constitutional level. And because the Penn Central test, among others, and also the Wensman case, uh, refer to reasonable investment-backed expectations, if you didn't do any due diligence to look at the city's ordinance in the first place before you made the investment, the takings rhetoric Council, has no place in let this me ask you. Let me ask you about the neighborhood piece. Um, what case... What Minnesota case best supports your argument that we're supposed to uh, take into consideration how the neighborhood feels about this? You know, limiting it to Minnesota makes it hard to specify an, an exact case. That was kind of my thought, but yeah, I didn't in, want to say which, that and reveal yeah. my ignorance if yeah. I was wrong. Um, you know, but you know, it's already Minnesota law that the statute invoked by AIM only protects a continuation, and this court has given that standard meaning on a case-by-case -case analysis, including looking at the decisions from other states. And I noticed that my friend cited as one of his two most important cases, City of Jewel Junction versus Cunningham. We're both citing that one, um, and and. The consideration of a changed use's impact on the neighborhood was part of that. Um, on page 9 of Ames' reply brief, beginning at the top, it quoted the Iowa Supreme Court's Cunningham decision as stating, quote, if a grocer or other merchant is storing and selling merchandise of one type, his status as a non-conforming use should not be lost if he changes to another type of merchandise. And at that point, Ames' reply brief 
puts in a period not in brackets and a close quote. When I then look back at Justice Larson's decision in Cunningham, what I found where the period was inserted is this limiting language. So long as the impact of the business on the neighborhood remains the same. That's on 439 Northwest 2nd at 186. That's important because AIM hasn't even tried to establish the impact of the business on the neighborhood would remain the same, and they can't do so under this. But to the, to the broader I think question. That's, I think that's correct. If we, get, if we get into the field of analysis about how the, na uh, the neighborhood is impacted here, clearly the neighborhood's going to be adversely impacted because there's yes. going to be off-site transit where there previously wasn't any. Mm -hmm. And if... Council, if we agree with you that um, the use that is being proposed is an expansion, is that the end of the case? Um, the, my only question concerns the choice of the word expansion, which is not the way that we phrase this issue. We, we think the court doesn't get to the expansion issue. They lose on the first sentence of 462.357 subdivision 1E, the part dealing with, that involves the language about continuation of the non-conformity. But to rephrase your question that way, the case is over if the court affirms on the basis of um, uh, that they didn't continue it. Um, and to, to go back to impact on the neighborhood for a moment. Um, and, and counsel, just to make sure I understand, and that's because your argument about um, the, the discontinuance of the nonconformity, that was an alternative argument. Correct, correct. Okay. That was part of our cross appeal. Um, and that one of the reasons why the impact of the neighborhood issue I think is an appropriate way for the Iowa Supreme Court and for this court to have looked at it is if a proposed use is something that has a significantly different neighborhood impact, then it's especially reasonable to expect the property owner to confirm to conform to current zoning laws. In other words, that analysis is closest to Minnesota land use law itself. So what, on that argument then, so what if, I think someone raised this hypothetical before, but what if they just, the chief, I guess, built a new paper plant that was generating, you know, eight times as much waste as the prior paper plant was generating. So that's going to increase by eight times the amount of trucks traveling from the paper plant to the landfill. Would that be an, a non-conforming, a non would that be a non-conforming use, a continuation, or not? I think that that would certainly tip the impact on the neighborhood factor, which we're not saying should be a hard and fast rule because there can't be one here, but that factor tips strongly against recognizing that as a continuation. Now, you're not always going to have the evidence of that in the record, but here we have the benefit. So even though they're using the paper mill exactly the same way, except they're just, or, or what if the paper mill burned down, but then they just brought in new equipment and they were generating five times as much waste? Yeah. Would that if, be, I mean, If how, it's mere intensification, if the only well, difference is intensification, but the impact of the neighborhood isn't greater, and it is still the problem. Well, no, what if the neighbor, impact of the neighborhood is greater? Could, yeah, you, the, could, they still could the city still shut them down if they just increased, they kept the same paper mill but just increased the volume? Because that involves, that takes the question of the change in the character of the use partially out because it, what you've kept constant in that hypothetical, as I understand it, is that the use 
continues to serve just the need of the owner of the property and not strangers of the property. That's correct. I'm sorry. So if the only question is the impact uh, on, on, on the neighborhood, under the case we're both citing, citizen of Jewel, uh, Jewel Junction versus Cunningham, city wins that case. Council, if we adopt your rule, um, I shouldn't say rule, that's not fair, but if we, if we adopt this factor of neighborhood um, uh, impact, um, does Wensman come out differently? No, it doesn't, particularly given the facts of this matter. Um, Wensman was not, Wensman, if Your Honor recalls, was an effort to take a golf course and to turn it into a subdivision. So, Which would have had substantial impact on the neighbors. And the question before the court was whether or not the denial of the rezoning request that was made violated the takings clause and the court concluded that in that circumstance with a particular focus upon the character of the governmental action because the city was singling out a particular owner of property to bear a disproportionate amount of the burden for solving the city's need for golf courses for that reason, there was a fact question that required a trial. There's no character of the governmental action here. There's nothing here suggesting that this property owner has to bear a disproportionate burden of any of this at all. So Mr. I think... Council, uh, Mr. Bay, Council... Oh. Go ahead, Justice Hudson. Thank you. <laughs> um, Council, you, you were about to say, I think, in answer to uh, one of my colleagues' questions, you were about to talk about if this were only mere intensification. And I wanted you to finish that thought because I my sense is where you were going is if that's all this were, that would be permissible. Is that all right? There is a line of authority that the other side is citing, not as mere intensification cases, but as intensification cases that we would run into trouble with. So it would be, it would be a path of greater resistance for us to have to uh, argue that it's not a continuance where the only difference between the two things well, was the, the volume of business Increased, but here. Well, one I of the was going to say, but but isn't that what they're doing? Arguably, this is intensification. They've gone from although there's a change in what they're storing. It's not just paper waste. It's now everything up to the car windshields. Mm -hmm. But isn't that the definition of intensification? Particularly since, as Mr. Uh, Cassiope says, the the ordinance in its definition of non-hazardous waste is very broad and would seem to include the very things that they now want to store. So they're just now intensifying. Let me resolve, respond to the last part of what you said. Based upon the list that you were pointing out, which is at the end of our addendum, there are a lot of things there that aren't even in our definition of industrial solid waste because it is construction and demolition waste. That's not the pro that doesn't fit within our definition. The, here we have a combination of... You mean your definition? Is it in the ordinance's definition? Much of what's on that list falls outside of the ordinance's definition of industrial solid waste. So their effort to say, well, this is within the scope of your definition for a use in a completely different zoning district, therefore we get to do it here, misreads our ordinance, among other things. But to the first part of your question, here we have... Undisputed facts that the waste of people or companies other than the property owner 
has never been deposited on the parcel and that construction and demolition waste and waste other than the paper mill waste have never been deposited on the parcel. This is not like bringing in a new piece of equipment from Hawkins versus Talbot. This is a circumstance, this is not granular. This is a big change in the character and it also has because, I mean, I heard my, my friend say, if they had granted us the permit, it would be full. So their own plan to bring 100,000 cubic yards of waste, which well, I think they've reaffirmed by council, that comment. Council, 100,000 cubic yards of waste, at pages 36 and 37 of your brief, you say, that's going to generate a lot more traffic. And you talk about the roads that come in and out. Yes. What is there in the record, though? about how many more trucks this would be, and did the district court make any findings on the neighborhood impact? Um, what the record reflects with regard to the before um, is that it, there's an average calculated by their engineers of the waste of the last three years that is slightly over 5,000 cubic yards a year. Yeah, it's a 20-fold increase, we know that. Yes, yes. But what, what are the factual findings? What's actually in the record about how many trucks that's going to generate and what the impact is going to be on the neighborhood. There is nothing in the record that shows how much cubic yards you can fit in a truck. I regret not putting that in there so that we could but do counsel, the math. But, Council, would you agree that we don't get to that issue if we agree with you on the characterization and that that's the important issue? Yes. This case, I think, can be resolved uh, on a variety of grounds, particularly the significance of the difference that the need that they are trying to satisfy. And Council, I understand that. I'm yeah. focusing on the neighborhood yes. argument, though. Yes. Um, there's, would you concede there's basically nothing in the record on neighborhood impact? You don't have any affidavits from... No. You can tell from, I mean, from the location, the map that we have that depicts where the plant was and where the landfill is, you can see the, the waste generated from the plant coming one direction of short trip, but if you instead open it up for everyone, there's no reason to believe that all of the waste is gonna to continue to come just from the Northeast under the circumstances. And there's enough in the record for the court, I well, think. That to, sounds to really speculative to me. You're, you're kind of divining which way the trucks are gonna drive? Is there anything in the record where a traffic engineer is saying there are going to be trucks coming from here and tr trucks coming from here? It'll be like a plague of locusts. There is not, and it's their problem because they, as the applicant, have got the, the burden of proof under the circumstances. That's what Judge Magnuson said and Judge McMillian said for the Eighth Circuit in Northgate Homes. So if there is an absence of evidence in the record with regard to neighborhood impact, that's a reason for AIM to lose, not a reason for the city to lose. Council, I asked opposing council uh, for uh, Minnesota cases that he thought best supported his argument. He gave me two, um, Northwest and uh, uh, the previously discussed um, um, no, uh, Hawkinson, thank you. I'm going to ask you the same question uh, as to whether or not there are um, the particular Minnesota cases you think we should look at that support your argument? The one that would be at the top of the list would be um, County of Freeborn versus Clawson. Uh, Justice McLaughlin's analysis in that case, although it involves a building and not just a use, um, helps identify, as he said, the policy 
behind the non-conforming use doctrine of eventual extinguishment. It also indicates um, near the end of the decision that the plaintiff has the ability, the property owner has the ability to uh, do what it was doing before in the same manner and to the same extent as they were at the time that the ordinance changed. That's useful there. And I don't think the distinction that's being made this morning between structure cases and use cases is a legally significant one. The statute that's involved here does not give greater weight to structural changes than it does to, um, to use changes. So that's equally applicable there as well. I think Hawkinson would be my second. Right, and, and I, want, I was going to raise that with you. I, I assume from your earlier comments in response to a question from, I think, Justice Lillehog, that your principal distinguishing uh, feature there is Hawkinson is, I mean, that's a function of equipment, and that's very different than what we face here. Oh, that's Hawkins. I right. like Hawkinson. They like Hawkins. <laughs> uh, talk about both of them, if you would, for a moment. Sure. I mean, Hawkinson, a couple of different parts of that. The, the part that they are relying upon is the one that rejected the notion that a mere change of equipment is sufficient to um, uh, keep it from being a continuation. We're not even close to that, given the admitted facts under the circumstance that we have here. With regard to, to the Hawkinson decision itself, it shows, among other things, that um, the extent of the change does not really reflect a continuation here. Um, can, so, can I ask you about Hawkinson and just whether it makes a difference in that case that I, that is different from this case that there was no ordinance at all, and then an ordinance was adopted, so it was a completely unzoned area, and then became zoned. I don't think that makes a difference in this case. That's even though they're relying on the fact that there was a there was an actual zoning ordinance that they relied on before the zoning change yeah. that doesn't have an well, impact. Well, no, and I, and I think the, the, the references that my friend made, um, Your Honor, may I continue? Okay. The references that the, my friend made to what was in the old ordinance and what was in the old permit reflect a drift away from an actual use test. They are, they, they are when, because when they are talking about augmenting what was, all the record admits happened and didn't happen here based upon what might have been legal based upon a permit we're moving away from actual use so we would urge the court to affirm can i just follow up quickly yes, on that? coming back to the other policy you know there's the fade away policy or you know this is going to fade away in time but there's also a property right policy underneath the non-conforming use law is the property right that someone has in a particular zoning ordinance just how they're using it at the time or is it the right to actually use it in any way that is consistent with a particular, I mean, yes. with a particular zoning ordinance. This court answered that in white. It said for the sixth time that the right in question is a right to remain. They don't want to remain. They want to change. Could I ask sure. one more question? Yes. So when I asked uh, opposing counsel if Verso could have made this, the same proposal and, and got and was allowed to do it, is, would you have a different answer to that? Um, no, the, the difference between the, you know, the, the change in ownership itself is not a basis to um, um, change the nonconforming use rights unless this court wants to overrule that part of Hawkins versus Talbot, and that's not one of our arguments. Okay. 
I'm not really focused on the change in ownership, but I'm focused on the, if Verso had proposed doing the exact same thing that AIM is proposing now, um, expanding the non-conforming use to um, accept waste from all over. Yeah, they, our arguments would apply equally if it, was, if it was Verso. Okay, that's what I thought. I must have asked it funny. Uh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the misunderstanding. Thank you, Council. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Mr. Excuse me, <clears throat> Cassiope, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. I want to start with a comment made by Mr. Baker that, that I think really highlights the extreme nature of the city's position here. What he stated was that in response to the question of, well, isn't the only way that anything could be deposited here ever again as if the paper mill were to be reopened, he said, no, if AIM were to, to build a widget factory, it could use the landfill to store its widgets. The implication of that argument is this, that the type of non-hazardous industrial waste doesn't matter, that the only differentiating factor, according to the city, is who uses the landfill. And that's important because with the exception of that aluminum smelting case from Ohio, upon which, uh, the unpublished case from Ohio, which is based upon unique aspects of Ohio um, Environmental Protection Agency and, um, and non-conforming use law, Absent that one case, council has not cited a single case from any jurisdiction where who uses the land matters. To the contrary, all of the decisions from uh, this uh, from the Northwest um, case we cited from Minnesota to the Triangle Fraternity to the City of Jewel Junction, all of them stand for the proposition that who uses the land doesn't matter, it's the use of the land. And so I, I really think that that is a key point that, that the court needs to consider. Um, with respect to the effect on the neighborhood test, um, two points on that. The first is, um, that is, it is true, that is a test that many courts have adopted. Um, it is our view that it, it is inconsistent with the plain language of Minnesota statute section 462.357 subdivision 1E in that the only um, analysis the court is doing in interpreting that statute is what is the nonconformity and is that nonconformity being continued or expanded? Um, and uh, municipalities like the city here have options if they believe that a legal nonconforming use is going to have a negative impact on the neighborhood. They can, uh, if it is so severe, they can uh, decide to bring a nuisance action or they can use eminent domain to purchase the property. But absent that, both of which are specifically set forth in the statute, absent that type of circumstance, the effect on the neighborhood doesn't matter under the statute, and we, uh, this court should not graft that on to the statute. The other response briefly on the effect of the neighborhood analysis is that 
Um, as I think council stated, um, a mere and courts are uniform on this. Um, and if particularly if we look at the city of Jewel Junction decision, um, which we have discussed at nauseum during this argument, um, mere intensification of use is not does not equal an adverse effect on the neighborhood. And the only case cited by the parties that decided that a proposed use was in fact an expansion um, based upon the effect on the neighborhood was another uh, decision from Iowa. Um, I believe it is the, uh, I don't, uh, I think it's the Perkins v. Madison uh, County Livestock Fair Association where a, um, a small rodeo um, uh, uh, area was converted into a large um, uh, figure eight racetrack. And in that circumstance, I think we'd have a hard time coming in and saying that that is not an expansion. Um, and so courts, and I, I believe this court, does not need to adopt the effect on the neighborhood test in order to um, uh, address that because in all or almost all circumstances where a court would need to reach the effect on the neighborhood test, um, it, it, is, it is apparent that there is not a mere continuation of use, but there is an expansion of use. Uh, I want to get back to the source um, and, uh, and type of waste question, because as, as we are looking at what is a, um, a continuation versus what is an expansion, the two relevant inquiries here, based upon the undisputed record, are um, does it matter who is using the landfill? And what I mean by that is does it matter that it was only the paper mill using the landfill for Minnesota land use law? So uh, consider hypothetical if um, the only change that AIM was proposing here was that um, there would be a new type uh, or new source of waste. So exact same waste. Um, paper mill sludge, uh, et cetera, but coming from a different source. Does that matter as a matter of land use law? Our position is it clearly does not. And uh, we would cite the courts, again, to Hawkins v. Talbot. Bringing in a new, new uh, piece of equipment from off-site doesn't matter. Northwest residents changing from um, one type of user to a different type of user does not matter. Council, what, what if you combine the new equipment with a new business model? So let's say you've got a non-conforming use in the neighborhood, it's a brewery, and one brewer is making his own beer in, say, one tank. And then that doesn't go so well, so then he decides, I'm going to add 20 tanks, and I'm going to allow everybody to come in, craft brewers from all over, and do, a, do their own brewing. Wouldn't that be an expansion of the non-conforming use because you've changed not only the size of the operation but the business model? It's become commercial. Uh, in order to answer that question, I would need to look at um, did, did the brewer need to make any expansion of his building? So let's assume that he, he did not. Um, what did the ordinance allow at the time that operating a brewery, uh, even if it was a one-tank brewery? The ordinance said you can operate a brewery. As a non-conforming use. If, if the ordinance was broad enough to say you can operate a brewery as a non-conforming use, it's our position, and we think it's consistent with Minnesota law, that the non-conforming use would be determined, would be the operation of a brewery. 
and since the new use where new people are coming in and there's additional tanks is still operation of brewery, that is a continuation of that use um, because of the way that you have defined the scope of the use. You know, I want to go back to your argument earlier that um, Minnesota law distinguishes between buildings and no buildings. Um, that's an interesting argument, and I'm just wondering, in the context of this project, um, do we know whether or not any buildings are going to be necessary to do uh, the kind of landfill work that um, your client anticipates? Um, based upon the record as it existed at the district court, uh, my understanding is no. One issue that was decided in our client's favor at the district court, the Court of Appeals did not reach, was the natural expansion doctrine. So that's kind of the closest issue. Um, we argued in the district court that there are currently two landfill cells that are open. And uh, this was originally uh, permitted and zoned for a total of four cells. And our proposal as submitted to the MPCA in the 2014 permit would allow us to open those two additional cells. And the district court, in analyzing Hawkins v. Talbot again, um, which is a natural expansion doctrine case, decided that a landfill like a mine or a gravel pit is entitled to use the original land that's set aside for landfilling, even if construction has not started yet. But as far as the issues in front of the court right now, um, we are not aware of, and I don't believe there's anything in the record that suggests an actual building will be built that is not there now. It's just open land and, and um, digging holes to put in waste. Uh, so we've talked about the Council, sort Council, before you move there, I want to go back to the, the who question. Does it matter who's using it? And I guess the, the one concern I have with your position is that if we look at aluminum smelting, which is the only case, it seems, because no, the parties have not cited any other case that deals with a waste facility. In that case, correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like the who did matter because they said you're going from a captive facility to a commercial general use facility and that that matters. And, and I think the reason they say it matters is because it's not the who per se, but the who means it's going to change the nature and the character of the property. And so I guess I'm wondering why why shouldn't we be following that rationale, given that it's the only case cited by either of you that is, is that, it, that arises in the context that we have here? Uh, the court should not follow that decision because it is based upon the, this notion of a captive landfill, which does not exist under Minnesota law. This landfill is, is and has always been permitted as a general industrial um, non-hazardous waste landfill. But that's has, not how you used it. I mean, I, I, you used it as a quote-unquote captive landfill because it was only, the only waste that was going into the landfill was coming from the paper mill. And I, if, tell me if I'm wrong about how, how, how captive is defined, but that's how I understand it. Yeah. Uh, captive is not defined under Minnesota law specifically. Um, you are correct. It is absolutely true that the only waste that came into this landfill came from the Verso paper mill. And that's what the party, I mean, that's what the cases mean when they're talking about captive. Is that not right? The only case that I'm aware of is aluminum smelting, and aluminum smelting specifically uses the term captive landfill um, in a manner that I have not seen any other case use, um, and it is not a defined term under Minnesota 
Pollution Control Agency or any other aspect. But of let's take law. the word captive out of it. I think the principle is that that they're they're articulating is where you have waste coming from a single user um, and into the landfill versus a commercial use, which is what your client wants to do. That those are fundamentally different things, and that they const and that that those different that difference constitutes a substantial change. That is absolutely the rule that is adopted in that case. That is inconsistent with every other case cited by the parties um, where it is, does not matter who is using it or how it's being used. And I'd cite the court to the Triangle Fraternity case as being particularly apt on that, where you were going to have significantly um, greater and additional uses than the prior residential home for um, retired adults. And the court I, said that doesn't matter. I don't remember. Is the Triangle Fraternity case cited in your brief? Is it, that, is, it is. It is cited okay. in our brief, and it's from the Supreme Court of Oklahoma. Thank you, counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Thanks to all counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. Uh, this matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. I'll